From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, April 2nd. It's Jobs Day. You're listening to the HPS Macrocast. I'm Matt McDonald in for Tony Fratto this week. And I'm here as always with John Fagan and Brennan Walsh from Markets Policy Partners. It, it is Jobs Day. We just got the jobs numbers. Uh, a big number today, 916,000 jobs created in March. Um, it's kind of a nice anniversary present of the pandemic, I suppose. Last March, uh, we lost 1.7 million jobs, and that was kind of the, the, first, uh, the first downturn before we took a nosedive in April. Here we are a year later, and we're starting to see the recovery it's worth noting that uh, U.S. is passing the mark of um, 100 million Americans having at least their first dose of the vaccine. So I don't, I don't think that's coincidental that we're seeing broader distribution at the same time that the jobs are popping. Leading the charge on jobs is leisure and hospitality sector, which got the biggest whack through the pandemic, but the uh, 280,000 jobs created there. And aside from that, pretty broad-based good numbers um, local education, local government that had a nice pop. Construction is up. Uh, really good stuff across the board. Labor for, force participation is um, pretty stable, but we saw some uh, re-entry into the labor force generally. Um, Brendan, what did you see in the numbers? So I think the most encouraging sign was uh, 500,000 women re-entered the labor force. Um, so in September, uh, close to 4 million women dropped out of the labor force because uh, their kids weren't able to go back to school. So the fact that the, the schools are reopening is a great, great sign for the, um, for the, the job market, but, but for the economy as a whole. Um, it, it's a sign that we're healing, even in D.C., who <laughs> has uh, been, been slow to reopen. But the, the new CDC guidelines that changed the, the uh, spacing from six feet to three feet has allowed um, a, a lot of schools to reenter because a lot of it, the, the issue wasn't uh, so much the teachers didn't want to go back, but you simply didn't have the space to let kids back because of the six feet. So I think that the CDC made a mistake with the six feet uh, a long time ago, knowing how it's not droplets, it's, it's aerosol uh, and mask really helped that. So that's a great sign for the, uh, for the economy. What do you, what do you guys think uh, we should, ex- so this is, I mean, this is a nice pop. This is the first, I guess the first big one since uh, when was it that we had that uh, um, I guess we had like a, you know, a couple of right after the April drop, yeah, exactly. we, had, we had a couple of, you know, 2 million, 4 million, 1 million handles, but this is for, we've, it's been a little while since we've had a big gain like this. What do you guys expect to see over the coming year? So normally when you, as an economist, when you look at, at job gains, you know, you, you do a regression and you, you see the trend and things like that. I, I don't think that analysis is going to be true this time. So I think we're going to see large job gains, but I don't think because we saw, you know, 700 that next month it's going to be a million. I, I do think it's going to be that, but I think especially come the summertime where most, the vast majority of Americans will be vaccinated and, and knock on wood, hopefully we'll reach herd immunity. Uh, and and especially restaurants and um, and and you know hospitality services can come back. So I think we're going to see a couple months of like five million jobs, you know, 
and, and then we'll be back to, to normal and, and go back to, uh, so I, I don't think it's going to be a gradual uh, um, job gains. I think it's going to be very chunky. It is interesting tracking the, um, tracking the, the virus too, even as we, as a hundred million, as a hundred million have their first dose, I think it's something like half that have had a second dose if they need a second yeah. dose. Um, you know, and then there's these, the, there's the kind of antibody tests and CDC projections on how many people have gotten it. I, that stuff is ranges between like 20 and 30% of the population, exactly. depending on state and that sort of thing. I don't know. It does, it does feel like the recent, um, you know, the, the, there's been a bit of an increase recently in cases, but it feels like a bit of a dead a lot of that bounce, is very like it's the last. A, yeah, exactly. And that's very centralized in the Northeast and, um, and, and actually Detroit's doing terrible. Um, but the U.S. as a whole and the U.K. are doing great. The, 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 the worry is the rest of the world is actually at peak infection rates and also peak hospitalizations. So we, we need to get the, we're, we're not doing this alone. It's a, it's a globe, you know? Yeah. So, um, that's the next battle. So obviously whether it's right or wrong, we're always, we were always going to vaccinate ourselves first, but that's a big uh, goal for the United States is to make sure the rest of the world can get vaccinated as quickly as possible. Yeah. That that's a really good point. And watching the, uh, the vaccination rates in Europe, that is Germany's going into a lockdown over the Easter holidays. Canada, with Canada just went in too. Yeah. Ontario. Yeah. It's, they're, you know, these, the, the rise in cases here, whether it's seasonal, whether it's just a pattern and the vaccination distribution is lagging pretty considerably in Europe. This is yeah. fueling. And, and that's obviously, what we know about the variants. It, they're not more deadly, but they're much more um, infectious, like four yeah. times as more. So it's not shocking that more people are getting it. And this is fueling a divergence in growth expectations over the, yeah you know, near term over the next coming quarters, eventually Europe is going to catch up. But yeah. over the coming quarters, there's a sense that the U.S. is so far ahead in terms of not just vaccination distribution, but also fiscal stimulus that and also just perhaps the risk tolerance of the population, the wherewithal to like just go out there and get rolling. The uh, So I, I got that, mine uh, last Friday. So a week from today, let's meet at Bobby Vans and then uh, we'll hop on a bus <laughs> and we'll go to, uh, we'll, we'll hop on a cruise. <laughs> Book your flights now, everybody. It does. Uh, uh, that's the, that's the kind of mindset that's been fueling the dollar. It's been fueling the outsized rise in longer dated treasury yields versus some of the global peers. And uh, there was a sense coming into this number you know, traders were bracing for it. It's a day where the bond market's only got half a day because of the holiday. The equity market's closed. There's not that much liquidity. And there was kind of fingernail biting around the potential for a big number like this on a day like this to upset the treasury market and create some more indigestion like we've seen. So far, so good. You don't want to put too much credence in one day's trading. But right now, the upside that we're seeing in 10-year treasury yields is pretty modest. It's like three basis points taken the 10-year up to 1.70%. That's right within its current trading range. Nothing really different on the 30-year on the bond. This is a, you know, a pretty gentle upswing that we're seeing in the dollar today. And S&P 500 futures are up after hitting a record yesterday. So this yeah. is, again, like consistent with the, the consistent with the view that 
markets have done a lot to price in these kind of good numbers. Now, is that going to hold in Brendan's scenario when we're over the summer and start putting some really big numbers on the board for some of these key data points? I think that's the real it's interesting. I mean, I, I yeah, I think that's <clears throat> that's right on the certainly on the monetary policy side. This is what they're aiming for, and they're going to let it run. And you know, we'll see how long they let it run and what that looks like. I think the, the that's right. The more we get into mid year and that sort of stuff. I mean, we're still at six percent unemployment, which I guess and after really, the financial it's crisis, really ten percent. You know, yeah. you basically add four percent because. Because of the dropout, it's a misclassification uh, where people say that they're not in the labor force, but it's because you dropped out because your kid couldn't go to school. The interesting thing to me is like is what effect some of this starts to have on the fiscal side of the house, and we'll we'll touch on infrastructure and the proposal in a little bit. But um, you know, the political will for more spending certainly is more of a knife's edge in terms of like the divides in Congress. And, you know, if, if big jobs numbers tell Joe Manchin that like, okay, this, this seems pretty good. That could, I mean, that could really change uh, the policy frame on that side of things. Exactly. Um, and, and it's not even, so, so, so much of the market is focused on the Senate too, where the house is on a nice edge too. So yeah. I feel like the house is actually maybe when this whole thing plays out, the house could be the one that gums up uh, the, the issue. Uh, what, what, what passes and what doesn't as much or even more so than the Senate. Yeah, it'll be, yeah, it's going to be, it, it's, it feels like, uh, you know, between the vaccines, between the jobs, you know, I think people are starting to, plan their travel, emerge from the pandemic hibernation. My favorite, my favorite, I was uh, watching CNBC coverage of jobs this morning and my favorite recommendation was someone, someone was like, put a buy on match.com. <laughs> that, oh, you're right. To, to me, that, that's, uh, that's illustrative of the mindset that, that people are entering into. Well, for in, the rest the, of the in the UK, uh, a lot of the pubs are actually owned by a publicly traded company. I forget what the name of it is, but uh, that's that's my recommendation. That's your buy. <laughs> uh, but going back to the Fed for very quickly, this scenario is just so different than anything else. Normally, if you had five million jobs, you'd be like, "Wow, wow, the, the economy is out of control." But this, like, literally, a restaurant closed because no one was allowed to come inside or they were scared to come inside. The reopening the economy is not something that, you know, should be troubling that the economy is running hot. It's exactly what you want to happen. So the, yeah. the, the Fed is right in letting, be, being cautious in terms of, of slowing things down. Overshoot. We know how to deal with inflation. You raise rates. Having runaway inflation like the market is in is worried about, in my opinion, would be the greatest outcome that we have in, in this situation. It means it worked. Yeah. I mean, the only the only problem with, with inflation is not the solution. The problem is, is political will, if there's political will. And I just think, you know, the Fed is drawing down on a lot of credibility in that on that dimension. Totally. Yeah, that's certainly that's certainly possible. We've talked with some clients about the Fed buying uh, the inflation protected treasuries tips are they do they have their thumb on the scale of one of the most key market based <laughs> barometers of inflation expectations and that's that's a fair point and you know you want to have a directional even even if the fed is in that market you would you don't want to discount the directional 
uh, signals that are coming from it entirely. But like most everything in the markets, it's a mosaic. You have to put a piece together, really, if you're looking at market-based uh, reflections of, of inflation expectations. And tips are one of them, one of the main ones. Uh, but certainly, if you're looking at some of the other things, it's hard to get an inflationary pulse with a weak do- with a strong dollar and strengthening dollar. The dollar has been strengthened on an uptrend over the past couple of months. That's blown some of the froth out of uh, the commodities markets. Uh, oil prices have been range bound. OPEC came out yesterday and basically said, you know, we're going into a taper of our of our output cuts. Oil prices have been sideways. That is a big signifier of inflationary expectations where oil prices are going and the way that the oil futures are. It's predicting downside uh, price action over the coming months. This is, this is, you know, it's still a very robust uh, looking setup when you when you cast your eye across the markets. But what it doesn't look like is is runaway inflation expectations right now. Gold, a traditional uh, hedge for inflation, has been trading like lead for the you know past <laughs> for the past three months. So uh, that's that's another signifier. None of these are on their own dispositive, but there's a there's right. definitely a sense that reflation is relatively benign, at least in, through the lens of financial markets at this point. Let's leave the uh, alchemy behind for a second. Take a break. When we come back. Uh, I want to get I want to get some hot takes on uh, the infrastructure debate that has unfolded in D.C. this week. Uh, this is the HPS Macrocast. On the first Friday of every month, HPS analyzes the latest jobs and labor market data in a digestible format. Sign up for our reports at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com or on Twitter at HPS Insight. We're back with the HPS Macrocast. Matt McDonald here from Hamilton Place Strategies and John Fagan and Brennan Walsh from Market Policy Partners. Um, guys, let's talk about the let's talk about the infrastructure package, the roll, the Biden administration rollout. It is in, I guess infrastructure week is here. This is infrastructure week, right? That everybody has been, been waiting, waiting for for years. years. <laughs> um, it's yeah. interesting. Um, I think that you know a uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of kind of political support for infrastructure. There's a lot of economic support for infrastructure. It does seem like you get into we, the weeds on some of this stuff, and it's become a vehicle for lots of things. I've seen, I've seen some poli- movement on the political consensus about what this bill is and isn't, does and doesn't do. It's interesting. Again, we t- we chat about this in the last segment. It's interesting to see kind of the jobs numbers in the context of this, the spending that has been done last year, this, the coronavirus relief package that um, that just passed. How? What did you guys see in the rollout? How are markets perceiving some of the the discussions this week? Well, the. the- the markets have been leaning into this announcement for months, ever since the Georgia runoffs uh, delivered the Senate control to the Democrats. This had been in mind and in focus. Everyone knew that it was going to be the second part uh, and that a faster, more emergency kind of package would lead. And we've already seen that pass the American Rescue Act, $1.9 trillion. And this is the, the follow-on the second part of the campaign and uh, how exactly it's split out 
was kind of a question and what the total magnitude would be the announcement. The details began to leak out the day before the uh, the announcement and uh, the price tag of 2.25 trillion over eight years is a pretty chunky one. And that is just the physical infrastructure part of it. Uh, as we'll discuss a little bit more, there is the, the caring economy and more social programs follow on that is gonna be announced sometime later in April, I think a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of weeks hence here. And that, given the magnitude of this first part, it seems like the total price tag of these two put together, assuming they are a, uh, they, they are a piece, uh, then it would be closer probably to $4 trillion. But uh, that is obviously being offset by pay-fors, the, uh, the 15-year uh, shift in corporate taxes from 21 to 28% and a, a global minimum corporate tax rate of 21% to minimize the profit shifting to tax havens. That is designed to basically pay for the plan uh, of the physical side of the plan, the pay for is this, this was obviously, you know, money's fungible. So exactly what taxes pay for what is a bit of political hocus pocus, right? But clearly they wanted to link physical infrastructure with, you know, having corporations pay for it, at least optically, in a way that the corporations are going to benefit from this increased productivity and these better facilities and so forth. So they are going to be the ones on the hook to, to pay the price tag. Markets really have, you know, whether it's, whether you're looking at stocks that are more growth oriented, your caterpillars, you know, these industrials, the materials, the banks who are going to be, the funding is going to be running through. These have been the ones that have been outperforming this year, the stay at home stocks, uh, your Zooms, your Pelotons, your ARK investment, the real go-go and momentum plus stay at home pandemic winners have been lagging. This is part of, and, and this infrastructure anticipation of this is part of that trade. Certainly the upside in treasury yields, there's that, that longer dated treasury yields responding to the growth expectations that this kind of fiscal stimulus brings, but also the treasury supply expectations. But the stability that we're seeing may have something to do with the fact that, you know, this, this package is not a sugar rush into the economy, right? This is over eight years. And we're going to talk yeah. a little bit more about, you know, as the, as the rubber really meets the road, so to speak, on, on infrastructure, there are lots of complexities. Uh, so the market isn't, isn't feeling like an overheating kind of uh, dynamic in the face of this. And plus the pay-fors there obviously are, are a counterbalance. Yeah. And, and you brought up a really interesting point on the, the, the tax side in, in paying for it, because looking at it strictly from, you know, an investor standpoint, we know we need infrastructure. We know that these projects will have a, a, a sizable return on the investment. So it, it, it actually doesn't make sense to raise taxes to pay for it, especially if you're going to pay for it from the federal standpoint, you can borrow at 1.7% on a 10-year, which is really cheap. Uh, but more importantly, you actually have a private sector that would love to, to invest in this. So, so, so the, the most optimal way to pay for it would be to not pay for it, either just borrow or have the private sector pay for it. But as John brought up, you have that political standpoint where when you look at polls, actually it polls fairly highly, two thirds of Americans are okay with, uh, you know, uh, corporations paying for it. Um, and John also makes a really important point that just because you allocated a trillion dollars doesn't necessarily mean that that, that trillion dollars gets uh, paid for. 
So that'll be a very interesting debate going forward is how much of the tax raises is actually to, to try to pay for these things and how much is actually a, a policy uh, decision to, over the long term, try to essentially redistribute wealth. Yeah, this is the, I mean, back uh, as President Biden as well, because he was in charge of it, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act after the financial crisis was, you know, I forget, it was, it was sub a trillion, but it was, uh, but there was lots of focus on shovel ready projects. And then President Obama had his, I forget its quote, shovel ready didn't mean what shovel ready wasn't always as shovel ready as we wanted it to be type of thing. It's a, there's a long way between here and there, right? It, it's not uh, always a straight exercise of just dumping money into infrastructure. There's a lot of complexity to some of that stuff. There is a high degree of complexity, and there's a reason that, you know, we've been talking with infrastructure experts over the past few weeks, and one of the points that is very salient and sticks out is the a statement that we've heard, money was never the problem. And that is, that is a worrisome uh, formulation when you look at the why haven't we done big infrastructure programs, and that speaks to the problem that you mentioned in that previous Obama era uh, effort, which was basically they approve the money at the federal level. The money has to be spent to a great extent on the local level. You dump it into the uh, into the coffers, and the mayor and the you know town manager look at each other and say, "What are we going to do with it?" The project pipeline in most places isn't very you know, isn't, isn't very well stocked uh, with as, as you know, in the old parlance was shovel ready. And this is a, this isn't your typical old infrastructure kind of spending. This isn't the surface, you know, roads bill. This is something completely different in the past. We didn't really have an infrastructure policy. Our infrastructure policy was if it needs fixing, fix it. Uh, if you can find the money, <laughs> that's, that's not really a policy. Now there's an, a, a real top-down federal infrastructure policy that is driven by imperatives to make America competitive in the future, to electrify and, you know, and focus on batteries, chip, you know, domestic semiconductor chip production. This is all, all has a flavor of this, of basically this new recipe in which infrastructure has real national security ingredients in almost every facet and sort of the the elephant in the room when you're talking about infrastructure is you know china the rest of the world are passing us and leaving us behind and it will leave us uncompetitive if we can't make this if we can't make some of this stuff work and uh, and i think that that really that imperative behind the scenes and the complexity of once you get the bill passed, that's, you know, not saying it's easy, but it's almost the easy part, getting the infrastructure bill passed. And then once you got the money, how do you make those projects fit your overarching federal, federally set goals? It's a really hard thing to do in coordinating federal and state, getting the the expertise. We don't have the muscle memory for a big yeah, infrastructure literally. program. We don't have people that are experts in it. No, for big projects, there's really five people on earth that can do these kind of things, not just individual humans, but but firms, you know, like there's not a lot of uh, the, the, the bench is not very deep. So, so where does it, where do you guys think this stuff goes? I mean, I, I think that it seems like there's a, uh, 
you know, there's, there's questions around the, um, you know, there's questions around what actually passes, what the shape of that looks like, both from what's in the packages, what's in how, what the pay fors are, all that sort of stuff. It feels like as compared to the coronavirus relief package that was on a freight train and, and uh, in the thick of, you know, one of the spikes and stuff, it, this feels a little different in terms of uh, what's going to land or uh, how it'll play out in D.C., all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it, it especially. So I think we get a big package, mm-hmm. um, but I actually think that it's harder to actually raise taxes. So it, it's 50 50 in the Senate. But more importantly, it's it it's what uh, there's a six uh, seat uh, uh, majority in the House. So actually, I think the House is going to be harder. You have what? 30, 40 kind of blue dog Dems that have to run every two years. So they're going to run in 2022. Yeah. Uh, do they really want to run on significantly higher taxes? They're well, listen, lose. the other aspect of that, and I, I think probably under maybe underappreciated from people who have a, I don't know, a little bit of a dated model on the parties is that, you know, a lot of those Democrats are representing very wealthy districts, highly educated districts, I mean, there's a re- there, it's weird to watch Democrats pound the table for the re- and, um, return of salt. I mean, that is a that is a that is a tax provision that benefits very wealthy people. It, it, it's basically the top one percent. Yeah. So Not basically it, it is the top one percent. Yeah. It, it just it has a it has a quality of like, I, I you know, I do think that we're in a bit of a period of, of uh, political scramble and. The parties have the, both part on some level. Both parties are a little schizophrenic right now, and um, and that's tough when you have a really tight margin uh, in both chambers. Yeah, and the salt debate is is really interesting too because it's a lot of money. So if you eliminate yeah. it, you're you're just you're basically giving a tax break to California and the and the Northeast. Yeah, um, because you know whatever ninety nine percent of Americans just take the, the $10,000 standardized deduction and that's enough. Uh, it's just rich people that get to deduct their houses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From a policy standpoint, does, uh, it's, it's a tough sell if you're t- you trying to talk about the, uh, the common man. Well, let's take yeah, a break. There, there are all sorts of other, you know, the, the creativity of uh, revenues and pay for is that's possible that we'll see, whether it's the wealth tax or something else come out attached to the social program and caring economy segment of this bill, they'll presumably have some different pay fors there. We, our expectation is really that when the, the discussions around capital gains tax, even a financial transaction tax, which given the you know, lofty all-time highs in the markets, it's, it is sort of uh, getting getting some more attention here. The disconnect between how financial markets are are running really hot and the economy is still struggling. That is ginning up some discussion about a financial transaction tax, uh, and you know, obviously the the PR surrounding a Wall Street tax that you <laughs> you can guarantee that that would play pretty well in a lot yeah. of parts of the from, country. But, from uh, an uh, out of consensus it, view, it, we we think that the financial transaction tax is actually highly likely to make it way in. A, it can raise a lot of money, uh, but B, after the GameStop and now the Arcagos, 
it actually has a policy uh, implication too, which can it, you know incentivize longer term holding and 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 um, take away uh, massive leverage and also the the high frequency trading. So it, it's one that checks a lot of boxes that's not on the market's uh, radar. But actually, I think as we we get into this debate, it's something that's going to uh, find its way into this bill. Mm-hmm. It's definitely one to watch. But in our rule of thumb is basically whether it's if it's particularly controversial or relatively creative or colors, you know, over <laughs> into the into the you know side of something that may have a tough sell in mainstream America, it's going to come after 2022. The yeah. Democrats are looking at this midterm election with the same kind of urgency, I think, that they looked at November 2020, maybe not quite so. Uh, existential, but pretty close. And meaning, uh, meaning that you think that that some of these tax provisions will be backloaded in the bill. Yeah. Well, I think that they'll probably not make it through. They may get pro- they may get proposed as part of the bill. We think that the proposal isn't really going to look. You know, there's going to be a lot of difference between what is proposed and what finally comes through the legislative process. And so we think a lot of the pay fors potentially that could get appended to the uh, the Caring Act part of the bill fall by the wayside and are sort of a statement of intent that may come back after the midterms. The Democrats are absolutely, you know, focused on widening their exceptionally razor thin, narrow margins in both houses and, uh, and doing anything to jeopardize that in, uh, in the, you know, in the next few years is not part of the program. Yeah. And that was kind of the narrative from the, the 2020 election that fell by the wayside because Trump was such a polarizing, um, character and then we had the runoff in Georgia. So the Senate and the 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 well the Georgia and then the the, the presidential election was really a referendum on Trump. However, the, the House, the, the Democrats lost a lot of seats. And, and that was much more a referendum uh on the Democratic Party. So it's 2020, if things stay static, I would expect the, the Republicans to actually take the House. So if you're uh, 2022. Sorry. Um, so if if you're the Democratic Party, you know, they're not morons. They, they understand this as well as you and I do. Yeah, raising taxes on a bunch of people is not a great way to get reelected. All right. Let's take a quick break. We'll we'll come back, talk a little bit about um, weeks to come energy. Uh, we'll be back on the Macrocast. Check out HPS Insights, a regular podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, bringing you the latest on policy debates affecting the business and political communities. Available on the HPS podcast channel on your favorite streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and Google. Tune in to the latest episodes and learn more at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash podcast. All right, we're back on the Macrocast. We we talked a little bit about um, OPEC and oil prices. John, what's what's the hot take there? What should we be looking for in the weeks to come? Yeah, well, the Saudis have done an incredible job keeping the fractious cartel and its allies together. Russia is not notoriously cooperative, <laughs> and uh, they've really pulled a rabbit out of a hat in their monthly meetings to keep this supply cuts uh, train rolling. This is the meeting where they they admitted that it's time to start tapering the Oil prices took it pretty well. Their range, they've been range bound. They sold off going into the meeting. And so there was a little bit of a rally afterward. Uh, it's not, appears to be a slingshot effect. And uh, with the supply 
picture kind of on a set it and forget it taper trajectory, the big swing factor is going to be demand. And this week we saw a lot of questions about demand given the announced lockdowns well, last week in Germany, this week in France, Ontario, and so forth. The idea that this recovery is going to be uneven and certainly the emerging markets are lagging where there's a lot of oil demand. There's they're lagging in the in the vaccination response, of course. And so really does go back to your point on kind of the global aspect of getting out of the pandemic. Yeah. And so demand is global demand is really going to be a swing factor. So every week's data is going to be in focus. Next week, we've got uh, global purchasing manager index, uh, managers indexes, uh, the service and and uh, and uh, combined components, uh, giving us a sense of, of how the recovery is going in a lot of parts of the world. Again, we've got another initial U.S. initial jobless claims and otherwise a couple of central bank uh, things. We've got the Reserve Bank of Australia, which has been pretty militant about the uh, steepening of its yield curve. So we'll see if they come out tough talking again. And, uh, and we've got the FOMC meeting minutes uh, for any further insights. But the Fed has been basically as, as unified and consensus on their messaging as, uh, as I can even remember. So, yeah, and the, and no the Fed is the one that writes the minutes, so <laughs> it's not like you're going to get a surprise that they didn't want to come. <laughs> All right, great. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to the HPS MacroCast this week. I'm Matt McDonald with Hamilton Place Strategies. Thanks to John Fagan and Brennan Walsh of Markets Policy Partners. Have a great holiday weekend. Thank you for listening to the HPS MacroCast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share. 